consumer demands disruptive technologies and AI are shaping healthcare for years to come. On Hello Healthcare, we dive deep on these issues with leaders who are driving change. We hope that these stories will inspire you to create and demand a better future in healthcare. Please welcome your host, Alan Tam, Chief Marketing Officer at Actium Health. Our first two seasons of Hello Healthcare are available on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our conversations with some of healthcare's most well-respected leaders in marketing, business strategy, data science, and much more. If you like what you hear, please share with your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, healthcare. For those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a while, you probably know that data-driven marketing is something that I'm personally extremely passionate about. It's been a great topic of exploration and discussion with many of our esteemed guests. Today, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper in that realm by examining the powers of quantitative and qualitative data. Some say that when you combine the two, the possibilities are endless. I have the utmost pleasure today of having two amazing thought leaders in the space joining me. Danny Fell, Senior Strategist at Optum, and Dean Brawl, Chief Behavioral Officer at Feedback. What a treat it is to have the both of you on this podcast today. Hey, thanks for having us on. Absolutely. So for those of you that aren't familiar with either of you. Why don't we just start with a little quick intro in terms of what you both do? Yeah. Why don't you start? Sure. So I'm the Chief Behavioral Officer at Feedback, which I realize is this very lofty title that doesn't necessarily (laughs) tell you what I do. And uh, we are a digital ethnography firm, so ostensibly social listening uh, through behavioral science. And so I get to both present the data often and sort of the thought leader within the company and one of the founders. We've been around about 13 years. Amazing. And I work for Optum in our analytics group and uh, work with hospital systems and healthcare providers to tap into some of the solutions and the data we have and been with Optum for about four years. That's great. So who's quantitative and who's qualitative here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we keep joking. It's like the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ad. Yeah. Uh, I'm qual. <laughs> and I'm quant. <laughs> so for our audience, what is quantitative data and what is qualitative data? All right, so I'll, I'll take the quant one, and then you can you can explain yours. Pretty much anything that is a relatively large set of of data becomes quant, right? At some point, you want to be able to to have a measurable set of data. It doesn't have to be big data, which was the title of our talk yesterday, but and there is no real threshold between what is officially big data. Typically, when you start talking about big data, it's quantitative data that is large enough that it requires some tools or computers to be able to analyze the data or or work with the data. But the difference, I think, between qual and quant, I'll be interested to hear what you say, is uh, we're more about using numbers and being able to draw some type of statistical or measurable difference in the data, which is a little bit different from qual. At its heart, qualitative is really about the observation of behavior. So, for example, you know, interviews. Interviews are <laughs> qualitative. Like this. Quality. this is qualitative. Yeah. Focus groups, things like that. Now, what we do, you know, day-to-day is use a qualitative lens to look at social listening. And there, I should point out, just to say it, you know, qualitative can become quantitative when you have enough of it. You know, enough interviews, enough focus groups, or in our case, you know, enough behaviors that we're observing you can code those and they can, you know, they can get into the numbers realm, right, in terms of getting quantitative. But really it's about, and this is what I fell in love with in my early PhD work, 
it was ethnography, this idea of observing and then writing these rich descriptions of what you're seeing to really get a good sense of the why behind things. Quantitative is incredible at telling you what's happening. It can't, there are definitely limitations, I think, about getting to the why. And so I think that qualitative for me often provides context. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. That's That makes a lot of sense. So earlier in my introduction, I talked about combining these right. two data sets. Should they be combined? And what are some of the advantages, as well as dangers, potentially, of combining these two data sets? It depends on what you mean by combine, obviously. If you're trying to get some type of statistical measure, you would want to be careful in combining qualitative and, and quantitative data that you're not, you're not maybe deriving incorrect assumptions or numbers that are based on really small counts that, that could be not projectable to the larger universe, for instance. But, but can they be, is there a lot of blend between the two? Sure, you gave an example. If you have enough qualitative data, it can become quantitative. Likewise, you may be doing quantitative things, phone surveys, online surveys, that as a part of that collects qualitative feedback, right? So I've answered your 10 multiple choice questions, but I also wrote in some comments about what I like or don't like about your, your product. So that would be qualitative sort of buried within the quantitative research, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think some of it too is, is sort of your approach. I mean, it's one way to say, well, you know, you mixed methodologies are always good because, you know, that's a good get, term. get at different things. But I also think that it's, it's not just for the sake of mixing it. It's also this idea of, for example, I mean, I love often saying, you know, zero is a data point, right? So if, if you don't see a response that you were expecting, or maybe you didn't get a particular demographic responding to a survey, you know, why? What is that zero? And sometimes by combining them, you can get some better answers. My favorite thing to talk about is NPS scores, right? Net promoter scores. So would you recommend this brand? I would then argue, well, I don't want to know just would you. I want to know do you. And so for me, it would be not just how you answered on the survey, but then looking out and saying, does that demographic actually talk about you out loud, like in the wild to peers and things like that? And so I think there's some interesting ways to be able to validate and give a, a more complete picture of what you're looking for by, if it's not combining, at least utilizing both, both methodologies. Yeah, and I think the premise of our talk yesterday was the importance of having both qualitative and quantitative data in what you're doing in marketing because you get so much more value and you risk losing perspective, especially today with so much hype around big data, AI, things that are more quantitative, but you lose the richness of the, the qualitative insights. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What are some specific examples that you guys have seen in healthcare that actually utilizes both data sets in a meaningful way? Sure, do you want to start with Paul? Yeah, well, I think, this. I mean, this is, pretty recent. Just even in the last week, we did an interesting study where the preference data, the survey, preference survey for a particular hospital came back a particular way, seemed pretty glowing. But what we were finding on the social listening side was that people were actually a little more, a little more sour about a couple of things that we were looking at. And what was kind of fascinating about it was seeing how when you look at then the market share, market share was low. So in some ways, the preference data wasn't telling the whole story. People may be willing to promote and talk about this particular brand or system, but it was like they weren't doing that. And so it was just a way that, that working together, that qual and quant, really did give them the whole story that explained why the market share was so low. Because if you, your market share is low and you do a preference study and it's very rosy, 
you could sort of be led to believe maybe it's a better situation than it really is. And I think that, you know, thinking about it from a marketer's point of view, what kind of messaging do we need to get out there, you know, and really understanding that audience. I think it's, that, you know, but that's where a good example, I think where both sides really did complete a picture, but on their own, I think that it would, it would always make you feel uneasy that you didn't, you were missing a piece if you had just done one of those things. Yeah, here's an example for the physician marketing folks in the audience. We have a tremendous amount of, of historical data on where people go for care, what types of care they're getting, what physicians refer to what facilities, things like that. It tells us a lot about market share, referral patterns, but we don't always know, to, to Dean's point, the why behind that. So if you're a physician marketing professional or you're someone who goes out and, and meets with and visits with those physicians, the feedback you get, the, the one-to-one can be as important as, okay, I've got all this great claims data that tells me where, where business is going, but I don't necessarily know some of the insights behind it. On the quant big data side in healthcare marketing, we're using it a lot, right? We're using it for predictive analytics. We're using it for personalization. We're using it for optimization of advertising and website traffic and things that we do you know, with apps. And we use it to market for acquisition of new patients. Um, so big data or large sets of data, however you want to define that, are being used in a lot of different ways in healthcare and, and healthcare marketing specifically. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are two amazing examples that you have both shared. But I think another integral piece to data, quant, and qualitative is kind of the role of technology. So my next question to both of you is, what is the role of technology in data-driven marketing? So technology is doing a couple of things. On the management side of data, the ability to use computing power, algorithms, business intelligence software to analyze large sets of data has really come a long ways, right? So when we're talking about millions or hundreds of millions of data points, you need that kind of computing power to do that kind of analytics and derive information from that. On simply the the signal side of it, right, we have more people online using more devices, leaving more (laughs) trails, breadcrumbs. We have more technology that tracks what people do online. We have people using home monitoring devices, remote monitoring devices. So technology is throwing off a lot more data, which sort of perpetuates the need to manage more data. (laughs) And that's a challenge at the same time. So there are benefits of it, but there are also, it creates new and different challenges. That makes sense. What are some of the common pitfalls that you guys have seen when applying technology and data and having that all work together? I'll take that one. <laughs> it's well, I so my argument would be, and this is not just from the qualitative side, but just in general, is that having a human being involved. And part of it is to just gut check things, understand so that when you're interpreting the context of things, you understand sarcasm, right? You understand the context of the dates, right, that are involved, like what's the timeliness of the data. And and you just kind of have somebody that can keep the main thing, the main thing, you know, for the mission of what you're trying to gather. From an example standpoint, though, I think that's where we, we talk a lot about personas in our presentation. And personas are a great example, because often when you're creating a new website, let's say for a hospital system, quite often, you would build personas out of the activity around the old website. So in other words, you'd look at these, you'd use it, you'd look at the <laughs> analytics of the old website and use that to build like how should we build a new website? Problem is, without you know, if you look at that 
from a different turn that prism a little bit, you realize that you are looking at data of people who you've already captured. So you're not in any way looking at the behavior of those who, who, who you want, who you're trying to draw. Two, it's from a website that is bad enough you want to replace it. So you know already that it's not the optimal framework. And so I think just having like a human hand in there, understanding the limitations of the data so that you can go get more. And I think that's what we're really getting at with, with our entire sort of concept around thick data, which is the idea of understand the limitations so that you don't fall into those pitfalls and you can fill those gaps, you know, with something that's going to help you finish like the, the last mile of what you're trying to understand. And personas, I, you know, I mean, there's other pitfalls with personas, just using generations, you know, ways that you could segment very bluntly that isn't helpful. But I think that it, it does speak to that idea of, you know, tech is great, but you can also lean on it way too hard. And, you know, in our, our industry, our sort of subset of the industry of social listening, most of the open APIs that draw out just constant data are only to the bigger channels. That's not bad. We want to know, you know, what someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer says on Facebook, understanding their journey, you know, things like that. But for us, the real, like, incredible behavior that's worth knowing that's going to really make us understand their journey is on breastcancer.org, a forum or message board that doesn't have an open API. So you don't want to get sort of shiny object blinded by the tech just because there's this open API to not understand that might not be where all the best information really is. So it's just kind of going in eyes wide open with that. Yeah, I think there's a big risk of that with quantitative data in particular, right? So we get fixated on numbers. This is human behavior, right? We can anchor people's belief in putting out a number in front of them. We can distort how people think about things simply by throwing out statistics or percentages, right? So I can say 70% of an audience did this or said this, and it sounds meaningful, and it almost sounds like, well, the, the majority, which you would say is the majority, are doing that. But without also saying, well, there's another one-third of people who aren't doing that, you sort of are missing part of the, the argument. And so I think oftentimes we, all of us, can get sucked into, you mentioned fixating on a number or on a what appears to be a statistical thing, as opposed to stepping back and saying, okay, let's look at the big picture here. What else does this tell us about you know, our audience or our actions or, or what we're trying to do? Hello Healthcare is brought to you by Actium Health. Healthcare leaders use Actium's CRM intelligence to identify their highest risk patients and drive them to care. Increase your patient volumes, revenue growth, and improve your quality scores today. Learn more at actiumhealth.com. And now, back to the show. I really like what you both shared just now as it relates to having a better understanding and looking at it from a more holistic perspective and understanding the limitations of data, statistics, and the need for human involvement. And I think that's something that's really critical, which kind of leads me to the next question I have for the both of you, AI. Mm-hmm. We don't right? really need humans now, do we? That's right. We're actually just simulations. <laughs> answering the questions here. So AI, you know, there's the talk of the town, chat, GPT. Yep. There's fear, there's adoption, there's mixed feelings about it. How does or can AI fit in in data-driven marketing? Or does it? And what are some of the limitations there that you guys see? And I surmise that 
your, your answers are probably going to be similar to what you just talked about. Probably. AI is being used a lot. I think um, it's, it's been, been being used. We've been using it for, for years now. And, and a lot of people don't realize the extent of AI in their smartphone, in their car, in their Alexa home voice-activated devices. So AI itself has been around uh, quite a bit. And AI is also a very general term, right? It encompasses a lot of things. Our team works with machine learning to build predictive models. That's a form of AI, but probably more appropriately called machine learning. Some of the newer technology, you mentioned you know, ChatGPT, which is a generative AI technology. I think the significance there is it requires large sets of data, right? I gave the example yesterday that the, the GPT-3 version, there's now a four, but the three version was trained on something like 45 terabits of data, which to put that in context is about 3 million books, right? And I think I looked it up. Uh, it's about 10 times the size of the Austin Public Library, mm-hmm. right? So that requires a tremendous amount of data, but it, it is not necessarily going to be always accurate. It's going to be influenced by what data you actually gave it, what rules you built around it. So there are some real limitations when we start to think about AI and specifically generative AI. And rightly so, there should be more structure around how we approach using some of that and more thought put into the, I think, the, the ethical use of it in particular mm-hmm. in some cases. I mean, it really reflects, I think, the pitfalls we were just talking about, which is just having that hand on it to understand what the limitations are so that it can be the most helpful. We've employed that kind of machine learning or AI. We've experimented where... Where in our process of social listening with that kind of behavioral lens, it might fit best. We've tried it on the front end. The problem with the front end is it's not always great at predicting the kind of behavior such as what communities have formed around different diagnoses, for example. So and then we also found that if we ask it to create personas, they're very kind of clunky, incredibly general. I mean, actually, they, they're just, they're not, it's not that they're useful, but rather they're just way too broad. So what we found is that actually where it fit really well is after we've already created some broad personas of our of the, from a hand on hand, you know, with the, with humans, and then let AI look at the data that we've segmented by persona. It, that we were using Watson at the time uh, from a machine learning standpoint. There's actually really some really great insights from an emotional standpoint, being able to code for different emotions within those segments. But it was interesting that it kind of took a human touch. To, to create those initial segments, like it wasn't as effective at creating the segments as it was understanding once we got some commonalities in there, really digging in and pulling in some great insights. So I think the best way to think about it, and at least from my perspective, is it's another tool. I think, unfortunately, I think from a media perspective, we tend to talk about it as if it's a new end-all be-all, not just a tool. And I think that that runs us into the dangerous category of what do we allow it to do that we might rely too much on, but it also doesn't just doesn't put it in the right context. Yeah, I think the, the context is really important and there is a tremendous amount of, rightly so perhaps, tension on it right now, but also a tremendous amount of hype. I think one of the interesting things is multimodal generative AI, which is essentially not just text, which a lot of people have played with, or not just photos, you know, show me a bear on a beach, you know, drinking a, a diet soda, but combining those. So where you're getting 
text, images, perhaps video. That's very exciting and also a little bit daunting in terms of what the computers are actually able to do or the, the algorithms are able to do. Wait till you see my photo of you with a bear on a beach drinking a diet soda. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so AI has been used, I think, for quite some time on the clinical side of, of healthcare, which yep. I would say yep. is much more risk-adverse than the non-clinical side of healthcare. And, you know, Dean, based on what you work on, I think there are remnants and sparks of AI that are starting to bleed into the non-clinical side sure. of, of healthcare. What are your opinions on, is healthcare, the non-clinical side, ready for more AI? I think one of the interesting challenges for, for the non-clinical side of healthcare is we're under tremendous cost pressures. And so while the cost of a lot of this technology and data is coming down rapidly, it is still a big investment. And maybe it's investment in data, maybe it's investment in technology. More often than not, it's investment in people who understand how to use the tools or do the analysis. And so I think that there has to be a balance there in terms of understanding what type of investment should you be making, can you be making, and that's going to limit what, what organizations can do. But I think the business side of healthcare, if you want to put it that way, is ready and will benefit from a lot of artificial intelligence applications. Likewise, I think there'll be a lot of things we throw, throw stuff at the wall that don't work. And that's okay too. I think we're very early in this. And so experimenting, testing, failing is okay. More so on the business side of healthcare, obviously, but I think that we'll see a lot of that as well. I think the other thing to keep in mind is we've been here before, I mean, even just talking about big data generally, where there's a lot of capital investment and you may even have a lot of incredible data to make decisions with, but it's all about whether you bother to try and make decisions with it. We do run the risk of AI being another Ferrari we have in the garage. You know, and that either and there's a long history of that. Either the people yeah. that you don't have to use it, right? That maybe they end up being last and first out, you know, from the standpoint of cuts. So I actually, if I can be somewhat optimistic about a pessimistic situation, I actually think that it's good that we're having this conversation about AI during lean times, because I think it's probably going to make for smarter investments than if we had it during sort of a heyday where people might invest an awful lot and then never actually operationalize it the way that it could be used. Yeah, so you reminded me of a funny anecdote. I've been in healthcare a pretty long time. I can remember in my early days, you know, we'd be touring a hospital marketing department, and this was early computer days, right? And they would inevitably point to a computer in the corner that was sitting there unused and say, oh yeah, we bought some planning data tool, but nobody actually uses that. And that we would, you would see that in a lot of cases, you know, and I think that's exactly your, your yeah. point. Yeah. Or, or silos. I mean, that's the other problem, right? Is that one department buys it or buys into it, but invests in it. And then it just ends up behind kind of a locked door because the collaboration elements aren't allowing it to be as beneficial to the whole organization. I mean, that's happening right now with big and small data sets already in healthcare. So I think, yeah, I think, Hopefully, if, if this can be a good example, I hope, of how things could cross, knock down some barriers, but also just be used in a much smarter way. And we're actually driving that car around, not just you know buying it and letting it sit there, yeah. especially with the high turnover we've got. Yeah, I think but the car can drive itself. The so car, that's true. Maybe it doesn't maybe, need us. Maybe we don't yeah. need us again. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you say is the current temperature or state of data-driven marketing in healthcare? Where are we on the spectrum? Wow. We're definitely on the spectrum. If you look at some of the industry research out there, 
you know, American Marketing Association, Salesforce, others who are Gartner, if you're, who are interviewing, talking to marketing professionals, it's all about data. The number of data sources are escalating, the pressure to use more data, the pressure to have more analytics expertise. I think it's, again, it's a good thing, right? I'm a, I'm a data guy and, and believe in data-driven marketing, but I think it also is potentially displacing other important things we're doing. And so we have to continually come back to, okay, this is good, but what are we using it for? And what are the use cases that we want to derive from it? So I think those are all keeping it in context, as you said, I think is super important. Yeah, I would just add that it, similar to the previous comments about silos, is that I think we're actually, if we look, if we look at the data flatly, I think we're in a good place. The problem is, I think from an operationalized standpoint, we are not often in the most optimal place. In other words, we're, you know, we may have lots of data we could be using to make decisions with, but because of the way departments don't talk to each other, or the data isn't talking to each other, or in some cases, you know, two people in the same office are talking to each other. <laughs> You know, I think that we do run that risk of not being able to use it to its full potential. I think that it's we're in a kind of data-rich scenario. I think sometimes we don't know enough about it to know what our gaps are. And I think that's where, you know, I, again, I, I think it's just a matter of evaluating what you have, what you could have, what you could connect, and then showing how all boats rise with it. I think that's where I think data, I feel, optimistically, again, that could be kind of a unifier within, you know, for buy-in across departments in a way that other initiatives may not always have that same, that same feeling. But so I think hopefully it can, you know, break down some barriers, but it is a, we're in an unusual time because I do think, you know, when we first talked about this idea of, you know, talking about big data, big data, that whole concept, there was this idea that everybody had bought into big data, but not necessarily we're using it. And I don't know that that's changed a whole lot. I feel like it's, you know, some are using it more than others, but the silos are real. Yeah. And, and consumers are facing this everywhere, right? You know, now we just have a thermostat that turns the temperature up or down. We have a thermostat that tells us 27 different things about our house. Right. And there is a tendency of society as a whole to lean into all of this data and these data points as well. But again, some of those are important. Some are, are less important. You guys have shared some amazing examples, really good examples of using that data. What are some bad examples that you guys have seen for data-driven marketing? Where have they failed? So I'll give, I'll give an example, not necessarily a failure, but I think a good illustration of getting ahead of, ahead of where maybe you want to be. I worked with a large health system that wanted to bring a tremendous amount of data into a platform, right? consumer data, millions of data points, but didn't know what the use cases were, hadn't defined the use cases for it to begin with. And so rather than pulling all that data in and then trying to figure out what to do with it, I think they smartly took a step back and said, let's develop some use cases, figure out what data we want to start with. We can always add to it. And that was a much better approach than simply dumping a, a tremendous amount of data into to programs and then trying to figure out what to do with it. Because that's not only time consuming and costly, but again, it also has the potential to take your eye off what really is a key objective or a key outcome that you're trying to achieve. So I think that's one example of where we can easily get sidetracked with, with kind of 
what's in front of us. I call it the the data buffet, right? I'll take one of those and one of those and one of those um, because I think it's good. But you get back to the table and you didn't really need all those. So that's one challenge. Yeah, I think I think cadence can be can lull you into a false sense of security too. We've had a conversation with an old friend who's at a very large health system and you know, they talk about doing the exact same study over and over again. They've been doing it for years. And it's shown that, that there's a problem, but they just have really no idea what the problem is. And it's it, this is in particular around employee satisfaction, but it was, you know, this idea of, well, we keep doing maybe next year we'll we'll get more insight into what the problem is. And the idea of just continually doing the same cadence until finally it was, okay, we should probably add some other element here to try and we've got a lot of what and not a lot of why. And so I think part of it is that that the failure to get too comfortable with that cadence and not ask enough questions. I think that goes back to that human element, right? Like ask questions about your data. You know, what's not there? Is there is a data point, like things like that. And not getting lulled into a false sense of security just because you're doing the same routines or pulling the same data over and over again, but really asking some questions about what you might not be seeing. Yeah, and there are some other practical things. Data governance is a really important topic for organizations to be addressing right now. And we have seen in the news nationally some problems with data and and, um, tracking technologies and things like that. And so organizations getting a better handle on where is our data residing, who has access to our data, what are we doing with data points. I think that's all really important. And it's easy to get focused on the technology and not have some of those data governance elements in place. And so I think there's a, a real need for that. For folks that want to kind of get started with data-driven marketing, hopefully they're already doing data-driven marketing, but combining quant and qualitative data, they're not sure how to do it. What would be your suggestion in terms of where to start? I would just ask ChatGPT. <laughs> just ask them what they would say. <laughs> I think that there's, a, so I'd have two answers to that. Number one is, I think just an audit of what do you already have? Mm-hmm. So what data is already accessible yeah. and maybe data that's that supposedly an organization may be inaccessible because of a silo, but just try and do an audit of what it is you've got. And then again, look for those gaps. Like what could you use to fill those gaps to, to illustrate a little bit more? The other maybe more practical example though, we gave this an answer to a question in the talk. I think you could, for example, look at the data you've got, you know, maybe that's, you know, patient data or, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, we've already got in-house, then do, do something qualitative and then, then end with something quantitative. The idea being that each informs the, the other. Look at the, the larger data set that you have, where are the gaps? Great. Do the qualitative to try and expose and give some clarity into what might be in those gaps. That also then helps you answer, ask better questions in the qual in the quant surveys that you might do. So just even that kind of just, just inserting into the, you know, into your process, something, some element that kind of helps you check yourself with a mixed methodology, but makes you ask the right questions, you know, at each, at each point. I think there's a role for marketers to also be educators. I think we make a lot of assumptions about people's knowledge of or comfort with analytics and data. And sometimes we just need to go back to some basics, like what, what do we mean by big data or right. thick data? What is a, an appropriate statistical model? Why do we use those models? So educating the marketing teams as well as others in the organization, I think is part of that process as well. And I think that will tell you a lot about where people are on the spectrum of their comfort in using and getting value out of data, how marketing can work with other departments across the organization. 
what data, to your point, whether it's clinical or informational or financial, what data are my other colleagues using that marketing should know about or would benefit from understanding? So I think that's probably a big part of it as well. I'd like to add, just to add to that as an educator is that then on the tail end of that, when you find, you find some great insights, you go be an educator within the other departments. In other words, take them to them. Look, we found this interesting thing that included an employee subset, you know, or whatever the case may be, share the data and the insights that you ultimately pull together. That allows for a lot of great buy-in internally for you to come as the educator to these other departments. And it increases the level of collaboration and your access to their data by you. So sort of close that loop from an education standpoint. I think that could be really helpful too. Yeah. Gentlemen, this has been an amazing conversation. I've learned a ton. It's been super insightful. I'm sure many in the audience want to continue the conversation. What's the best way for folks to continue the conversation with either of you? What's the best way for folks to get a hold of you guys to to chat about this more? I'd say LinkedIn for me. Same. Thankfully, there's only one Dean Browl, so it's relatively, (laughs) should be easy to find. Thank you so much. So So for those of you in the audience that want to continue the conversation, these are two amazing thought leaders in data, qual and quant. I highly encourage you to reach out to either of them or both of them. Super insightful. There's so much more to share, but unfortunately, we're out of time for this podcast. Until next time, hello. Thanks again for tuning in to Hello Healthcare. If you like what you heard, we appreciate a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You and your feedback fuel us. This conversation is brought to you by Actium Health. To get the latest on what these healthcare leaders are saying, subscribe on hellohealthcare.com. Thanks. And when we see you next time, hello.